Hello, flight instructors and NAFI members. John Niehaus, Program Director for the National Association of Flight Instructors, welcoming you back to another episode of the NAFI More Right Rudder Podcast, the podcast for flight instructors on the go. And today I've got a special thanks to not just this episode's sponsor, but also longtime supporter, sponsor, and friend of NAFI, Sporty's Pilot Shop. Embark on an exciting journey with Sporty's this February. Join them in celebrating IFR Month, a thrilling four-week exploration of the challenges and rewards of instrument flying. Immerse yourself in their YouTube video series, delve into a treasure trove of IFR articles, and take advantage of limited-time savings on essential IFR products. Let this be your opportunity to earn your instrument rating, stay current, unlock the full potential of your pilot certificate, and above all, have a blast cloud surfing. February 2024 is your month to soar to new heights with Sporties. Visit sporties.com forward slash IFR. In addition, Sporties also is kind enough to offer discounts to NAFI members. So don't forget to log into your NAFI account and try to get uh, 20% off of most training products. So we thank them for sponsoring this episode. And certainly we thank them for their longtime support of NAFI and our members. Now, this episode, we're calling Why Discussing Pilot Medicals Early is Essential to Avoid Training Delays. This is with my AME, Dr. Gregory Pinnell. But Dr. Pinnell also runs a business called AirDocs. And uh, he came on the podcast to sort of discuss just kind of uh, some of the issues with medicals and how to prevent a delay in getting your pilot medical. So this is paired up with sort of the medical series that we ran in January. So I think it's a really good episode. I hope you enjoy it. Don't forget to... subscribe to our podcast, maybe rate us, maybe find us on social media, and above all, make sure you join NAFI if you haven't already. And remember that uh, listeners of this podcast can get a $10 discount. So for a new member and a joining member, don't forget to use the code POD49, P-O-D, Papa Oscar Delta 49 to get $10 off. Thank you so much and enjoy the episode. I have a very special guest, and it is uh, Dr. Gregory Pinnell. Dr. Pinnell is the president of Aerodox Aeromedical Support Services. He's been an AME for over 23 years and a pilot for over 42 years. Um, He served as the chief flight surgeon and commander for the 434th Aerospace Medicine Squadron. Um, He was the deputy chief of the bio astronautics for (laughs) tough word for me uh for human space flight support and worked on 23 space shuttle missions uh he works for my alma mater as a adjunct professor for western michigan university and i'm very proud to say he is my ame he gets to see me at least once a year 
Um, Dr. Pinnell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, John. Pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to have you. Um, you know, for those that don't know, we have been talking about this for a while now, and there's a lot of things coming down the pike from just sort of the aviation side, but primarily on the flight instructor side of how we could be doing better in regards to making sure that our students are not just prepared to get their medical, but that we sort of know what we're getting into and making sure that they don't um, have issues along the way. I, I'm understanding that there's a, a pretty good backlog in that. Um, and so you and I got to talking and um, the whole primary idea of this particular podcast, and it's going to be a lead in into your uh, mentor live, which we'll have some dates on soon. And it's the idea that by the time the flight instructors are starting to even have a conversation about medicals with their students, they've already invested a ton of money and could potentially have thrown it away because maybe there are some things that would be uh, difficult for that student to overcome. Would you agree with that? Yeah, we see that, John, on a very, very regular basis. Uh uh, basically, every week we'll we'll see these kind of problems. So, what's going on, and and what? Uh, how do we relate this back to how a flight instructor can be? I mean, let's be honest, doing a, a better job with this. Well, the flight instructors have a pretty broad responsibility as far as you know. First of all, protecting themselves and the student, and also educating the student into the into the aviation community. And obviously, when a flight instructor is working through a lesson plan or a progression with a student, regardless of how often they're flying, they don't want to have a break in uh, training. Obviously, and everybody knows this, we want uh, training to be on a regular basis so we don't lose lessons from the past, uh, from the past lesson. And one of the things that we see on a very, very regular basis, uh, particularly in the Part 61 schools, is we'll see a student get through his flight training, get up into that 14, 15, 16 hour range and starting to be looking at, you know, pre-solo preparation. And the flight instructor says, hey, I need to get a copy of your medical before I can allow you to solo. And then we wind up seeing the uh, student who is usually young. Uh, not all the time, but generally who is, who is young. And then we find a medical condition that likely is not going to be a showstopper. The showstoppers are very rare. Um, we do see them uh, because of the volume of cases we see, but they're pretty darn rare. But what we see is we see something that's going to slam on the brakes of the flight training, possibly for like six months or even a year. And... A lot of times it's in a situation where the, uh, the student pilot doesn't really have a problem, but getting through the documentation and the evaluations to prove that they don't have a problem and to get them their medical is going to take an extended period of time. Obviously, we don't see that as much in the 141 schools, although we do see it. Uh, where the student may have that same problem, but they have to have the medical before they start the flight training. So usually we have at least a little bit more lead time to be able to uh, start addressing the problem. So why do you think that, you know, we're seeing an increase in this type of activity? What What is the catalyst to instructors just 
not talking about the medical with students prior to to training, regardless of which regulation they're operating under? Well, we, I mean, there's a variety of reasons why the instructor may not want to broach the subject. We do see some of them who do. But, you know, one aspect of it, you know, I hate to put it in these terms, but, you know, financial for the flight instructor, they don't want to lose a student. And I don't blame them on that at all. Uh, or they may not be thinking of that, or they may not in their initial lessons, and this is probably the biggest reason, in their initial lessons with a the student, they're not seeing a problem. The mm -hmm. student's progressing well. They're doing what they should be doing for like four or five hours or how many other hours of flight training. And they don't see any physical deformity in the person or any particular behavioral problem. And they say, well, this isn't likely going to be an issue. But then we find something in the student's history mm -hmm. that was and is going to delay us. Well, and it's probably a combination of, you know, as we know, there's a lot of turnover in instructors and and yes. a lot of them are new. And, and there's probably a, a fair amount of them that don't know what they don't know. I mean, I think that that's something at NAFI we've tried to to help with because you you can teach somebody to to do the job, but there's so much unwritten, you know, wearing of different hats that uh that you just you can't know until the person sort of stumbles upon them and and I think having a understanding of physiology and and you know, the the human body may be one of those sort of lower limiting factors on flight instructors. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I will say in the 40 some odd years in, in the aviation milieu that I've been, and I, you know, I, I got my pilot's license and actually I got mine in eight weeks uh, over uh, two months uh, in undergrad when I had two months uh, free and I just went, you know, full, full throttle to get it done. But the, one of the things that we've seen is the, the turnover in flight instructors right now. The, I, I don't think anyone alive today has ever seen anything like that. Well, there's so many things in the aviation industry going on right now that no one alive has ever seen anything like that because of you know, the pilot shortage situation that we've got. Mm -hmm. um, so that is part of the problem. And the second part of what you said is they just don't know what they don't, what they don't know. Um, and, you know, we don't expect them to, yeah. uh, but we need to have the flight instructors have at least a basic knowledge of the things that, although, again, may not be showstoppers, may delay things, give us time to get the person's medical in their, in their hands. Um, you want me to give you an example, John? Sure. What do you got? All right. So let's talk about what, what is by far and away the most common scenario uh, that we run into and that of issues of attention deficit disorder. Um, sometimes intermixed with uh, what we call autism spectrum disorder, but let's stay focused just on attention deficit disorder. The first problem we run into it, and this isn't, this isn't basically aviation, this is across the board, it is way overdiagnosed in kids. And it is also uh, overdiagnosed from the perspective of there is limited testing frequently. Sometimes the diagnosis will be made uh, on little Johnny uh, based on a teacher's report or something like that. And the next thing you know, the child is on or the youngster is on medication. Now, I will tell you, um, any normal person 
if they're put on any of the tension deficit disorder medications, will remain calmer. I don't care if you have no indications of, of ADHD or attention deficit disorder, you will remain calmer. But so Johnny couldn't sit still in school. He's given medication and now he can. So, okay, diagnosis confirmed, and eh, maybe not so much. So the youngster gets a little bit older, maybe gets into his 12, 13 year age. They, they may have been vacationing off the medication during the summertime when, when, you know, when little Johnny's not in school, but there's never been a definitive diagnosis. And, and maybe, maybe the family or, or the or the person themselves, the patient themselves says, you know, I'm not really sure I need this medication anymore. Okay, so the medication is stopped sometimes with or without the acquiescence of the, uh, the prescriber who is prescribing in the first place. Okay, so it goes through high school, wants to start his flight training. All right, um, you know, picks out his CFI, starts working on his ground school and everything is going swimmingly well. Then all of a sudden, we get them in for their medical, and guess what? We have, an, we have a diagnosis of attention deficit disorder. Now we've got to run this issue to ground. Mm. Now, without getting too much into the specifics of this, historically, FAA in the past with this has required a full evaluation, which, which actually resulted in a full neuropsychological evaluation, which was A, expensive, be time consuming and sometimes see wasteful because it really wasn't necessary. When we do actually do the uh, mentoring session in February, we'll get more into the details of that and how that new system will work for FA. But the FAs come up with a, um, a two tiered system, a standard track and a fast track system. Hmm. It's in the fast track system, although we haven't been able to use it very much because unfortunately many of the cases that we see, and we see a ton of these, they haven't met the criteria that allowed us to go into the fast track lane. We've had to go into the standard track lane. But the fast track lane allows for, if it's appropriate, for a relatively quick evaluation of the student pilot done hopefully in concert with his, uh, his medical insurance to try to keep the cost down. And there is a possibility that we may be able to normal issue the student right out the gate instead of waiting nine months or 10 months or, or, you know, or a year for the evaluations to get done, get them uploaded into the FAA system and have them reviewed and then negotiate out the medical. So that's probably the best example of that. Now, what what confounds that is in cases where attention deficit disorder truly exists, it is not unusual to see other mental health diagnoses or other developmental diagnoses in, involved with that too. And believe me, that complicates it a lot more. But some of that is stuff that the CFI is going to see. Um, when a youngster comes into the office, and this has happened more than once, where the parents are humoring uh, little Johnny, and Johnny wants to, you know, fly, a, you know, a triple seven, but he has all sorts of disorders from the behavioral point of view, which are not going to allow him to, or would be appropriate for him to be flying. Sometimes we'll see that kind of behavior 
when the when the youngster is sitting in the chair, you know, even while we're just talking with him, we'll we'll start to see things which are telling us there's a problem. I suspect that the CFIs probably see those same things because most CFIs are really astute to picking up quickly on behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a matter of we got to get through this evaluative process to determine who can and who can't fly. The good news on it, and we'll go more about this in the podcast, is that the vast majority of these cases, and we again, we'll get these cases, we'll get a couple, two or three of these every week. The vast majority of them go on to medical certification. They may need to be on a special issuance for a while. We may need to follow them for a couple of years, see how they're doing on their flight training. But the vast majority of these will succeed. So that's an example of how this can roll, at least the, the, the broad strokes of it. You know, it's interesting because uh, one of my students, one of my former students, um, and, and I'd, I'd love to actually corroborate this. So I'm glad we're talking about it. One of my former students had a um, ADHD diagnosis as a child, but his dad um, had always said, because his dad was a physician, his dad said, we're not doing medicine. You know, we'll we'll do what we can to kind of make the 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 process as easy as possible on on the individual um but he he said we're not medicating we're we're gonna just kind of figure this out and it turned out um at least from what he told me as he was going through the process that it was lucky that he was never on the medication because it wasn't so much the diagnosis that was the issue it was the, the medication is that a correct statement it's both it's it is both. okay um, yeah, it's both. Now, kudos to that physician who not who didn't want to go down the the medication uh, road. I mean, I'm 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 not trying to be critical, but you know, sometimes we see some of these behavioral issues. I mean, it really comes down to parenting uh, as much as anything. But it is both the diagnosis and the and the and the use of medication uh, that that cofactor into the evaluation uh, of the student pilot. Is it just the nature of having been diagnosed with something that has created the issue for medical certification, or is it the actual? Um, you know, classification of having ADHD that is the hang up. That's a good question, actually, John. And operationally, I will tell you it's more the dying. It's, it's far more often. It's the diagnosis which occurred either right or wrong. And again, remember, circle back to what I said a few minutes ago. It's overdiagnosed like crazy. Maybe not as much anymore. We're getting a little bit better with it. But it's usually more the diagnosis than actually what we see. Uh, as far as this, this you know, the, the students' transcripts, they have a part-time job, how they're doing in that. The CFI statement, which tells us he's doing fine. Mm -hmm. He's doing exactly what he should be doing for the amount of hours that we got. Now, in fairness, although so this is rare, and we have had this a couple times, we, we see dozens of CFI statements, literally dozens. And the vast majority of the time they say, hey, Johnny's doing just fine. He's doing great. And we have to we have we have to factor that in with what what the evaluations either in the past or what we're currently doing on them to corroborate the diagnosis. We have to put those two together and try to get to make sense 
out of them. But every once in a while, and we've had a couple of these, where the CFI has said, mm, we got a problem. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, w- within the context of, of, of this podcast, I don't want to spend too much on the story, but basically the CFI said he doesn't want to get back into the air with the kid again. And obviously that resulted in a phone call to the CFI saying, what did you tell me what you saw? I mean, you know, I've seen hundreds of, of uh, student pilots go through flight training. I, I, I don't see this coming from a CFI saying, I don't want to get back in the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Obviously that didn't bode well for the, for the youngster. So it's, it's both. And it, it's, it's a matter of what we have to tease out. Well, and that's, and that's interesting. And I'm glad you mentioned it because I don't think I've ever heard it before. Um, you know, we always talk about, uh, the CFIs, you know, as a career, as a job, it is sort of a safety line of defense. Not only are we, um, you know, teaching as the FAA is deeming like, Hey, this is the new thing. This is safe. We need people to understand this. This is the best way to teach it, to create safe pilots. But we're also getting those people back for, you know, either recurrent rides or recertification rides, flight reviews, IPCs, what have you. Um, but then on the same on the same notion, the the flight instructors are then being used as sort of the defense against what could be an unsafe pilot. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's interesting. But what I always love to do is try to find ways to sort of spin it to the positive. And, and this is the part that I didn't realize I didn't know that a flight instructor could actually write something that could be beneficial to to the student. If if they do have a potential issue, that that the instructor could sort of vouch for them on their behalf. That's an interesting thought. Absolutely. That honestly, John, that CFI statement is vital many times, and I'll I'll put it into context. Let's say. Uh, the the student pilot coming in for their medical, let's say we have a, a history of attention deficit disorder, and let's say we have to do testing on them, go through the neuropsych testing. Now, neuropsych testing isn't inherently hard. It's just a, it's just a ton of tests, small tests. And like everything else in life, we all have things that we're good at, and we have things that we're not, that we're not good at. So Johnny goes through his neuropsych testing, and yeah, he's got a few weaknesses, you know, in processing or recall, but I mean, they're not huge weaknesses, but now we've got to put that, we've got to put that, that didactic testing. Now we've got to put that in real life context. And the CFI statement on that is crucial because to show you how this will roll frequently on this is, um, so we'll get this neuropsych testing saying, oh, okay, we, we're looking pretty good, but we got a few weaknesses in here. We got a CFI statement that is saying Johnny's doing really well. Now, what will happen with us is we'll get a call uh, or we'll engage with one of the FA doctors, which we know all of them. Um, you know, we've been working with these guys for, you know, many, many, many more years than I care to admit, actually. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and they'll go, no, what do you think? You know, you got a good feeling about this. You know, you got a bad feeling about this. And the vast majority of the time saying, you know, we're, we're two thumbs up. Now, to take it one step further, um, what kind of medical will this youngster maybe get? Well, 
the majority of the times they wind up on a special issuance for a couple of years. Let's let's let him fly. Let's get him going. Let's see how he does. Okay, we may require some re-recurring uh, recurring reports uh, from maybe from his treating physician and uh, hopefully from the CFI too. That says he's doing great. And then after one or two cycles with him, if everything is going well, he gets released back to a normal medical, wish him well and hope his flying career goes, goes well. So that's how those roles. And what it comes back to, John, is, yeah, that CFI statement makes it real. I'm good at reading neuropsych reports. I'm reasonably good at neuropsych reading neuropsych reports. I, I'm not a neuropsychologist, nor did I sleep at a Holiday Inn Express last night, okay? <laughs> but I'm not a flight instructor. I'm just a 2,000 hour plus private pilot, you know, and that CFI whose job, as you said, is a defense mechanism for the national airspace system. I'm really depending on them because frankly, they know way more about flying than I do. I'm really depending on them to tell me, what have we got? What are you seeing in real life in, in this person? And they, they generally do a very good job with that. Hmm. And, you know, seeing as though I think a lot of people probably are um, unaware of this as much as, as I seem to be, um, if you had a student in this situation as a CFI, are you supposed to know to write this or will the ame that they go to say hey can you go back to your cfi and get a get a statement from them like would i be better off trying to volunteer this out of the gate no it, it's really not necessary and i'm trying to couch this in as politically correct way as i possibly can considering i'm not too tremendously politically correct um there are AMEs that will work with these types of problems as far as, you know, running, you know, doing the work that's need to, done, to be done. There are some AMEs that will defer the case in and say, you know, you're on your own. You got to, you know, you got to, you got to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is, no, the CFI basically just wait until you wait until we request it of you okay and sometimes we need to talk sometimes the cfis will ask for a phone call from us and say you know tell me tell me what you're looking for and you know that's usually a two-minute conversation with them and they go oh okay i got it and uh and then the next thing you know we've got the document that we want but it, it really comes down to, from the ame perspective caring enough about the case to do the work to take it to conclusion i suspect there's probably some young individuals who are not flying um, that could be flying safely that probably got lost in the system due to somebody just simply not taking care of the case properly. Mm -hmm. Just saying. Yeah. And, and before we, before we kind of segue into the next thing, um, it, it is worth noting that, uh, you know, as you mentioned, ADHD is not, um, it's not the end of your career. It's not the end of your, your potential flight training. There's, there's oh. still a lot that, uh, that can be accomplished. And of course, that's what this is all about. It's trying to help these people get through the system and, uh, you know, to, to put a bow on that side of the story, my student who, uh, was a, he was diagnosed with ADHD. He now flies for net jets, which is one of the proudest moments in my career. So absolutely. Um, that, I I've been flown by about 
five of my uh, five of my students from Western now, you know, as, primarily as FOs right now. None of them made captain yet, but I've I've been flown by about five of them right now, and I survived all those flights. So we must be doing something right. Exactly. So if you find yourself in this boat, um, you know there there is light at the end of the tunnel. These things are are here to help. Don't let it discourage you. Um, but moving Absolutely. on to the next thing, you know, you mentioned that, uh, you know, sometimes that's potentially a lead into other mental disorders or or other things going on in the brain. And I think as as an industry, we're, we're finally kind of talking about this stuff, um, you know, and, and I think that's refreshing to to see that it's, you know, it's becoming part of our general vernacular. But let's let's talk a little bit about, you know, what other things may lead to complications when trying to get a medical in, in terms of, you know, mental health and things like that? Well, let's put it into context first. Okay. The pilot population generally mirrors relatively close with some exceptions. The general population, as far as the incidence of various different disease processes, and that goes along with mental health disorders as well. Uh, you know, a, pilots get depression, general population gets depression. You know, obviously as a pilot, particularly when you're flying others, the consequences or potential consequences of, of, of mental health illness can be a way worse. I mean, obviously look at the, you know, Andreas Lubitz and the German wings situation. Mm -hmm. Now we've had a couple of, and, and it, it's, it's not probably completely accurate to say that we've all of a sudden discovered this problem. Okay. It has been on the FAA's radar for some for some years, but now we've had a couple relatively high-profile incidents recently involving the Part 121 industry that are are really concerning. And I'm specifically speaking to the the jump seater that basically tried to do uh, an engine shutdown, um, and also then the recent flight well, back in August of last year where the uh, the FO threatened his captain. Mm -hmm. uh, over a medical divert. I mean, this is really getting real now. Mm -hmm. All right. So in, in a couple of ways of saying it, number one, like I said, people uh, in the pilot community, we have the same problems that people who are not pilots. Now, hey, they're not as good as we are because we're pilots. <laughs> Just saying, we are we are a special community. As I tell my students, we are a special community. Sometimes that's good, sometimes not so good. Um, but you know, the, for example, the pandemic's been rough on everybody, and you know, the the pandemic is has unfortunately, in many cases, brought out particular mood disorders such as anxiety and depression. They brought that out, and it needs to be treated. Frankly, if you treat it it actually gets better faster. So what are the most common forms of uh, mental health problems that we will run into on a pretty much daily basis? First of all, anxiety disorder will be one of them. Um, number two will be depression. And these are called mood disorders, all right, or because of depressed mood or anxious mood. Uh, another one that we'll see very commonly, and probably there's nobody who's lived life long enough that hasn't gone through some version of this, is what's called an adjustment disorder. And we'll get more into that in the actual, in the, in the actual, uh, the actual mentor live session. But what is an adjustment disorder? An adjustment disorder is where something 
happens in your life and what it good or bad. It doesn't necessarily just have to be bad. It can be good. And it overwhelms your coping mechanisms. And basically it makes us not as functional as we should be. Now, we know for a fact that if we treat it, again, sometimes with medication, such as the other mood disorders, we know that it gets better faster. But we know in the adjustment disorder, it will be, by definition, it will be a time-limited event. It will get better. If it doesn't, it's not an adjustment disorder. So what we see commonly in the end, we see this one as much in the adults as we see in the, in the in the younger student pilots. Sometime in their history, they had a episode of depression, whether major depressive disorder or some other mood disorder, or maybe uh, maybe anxiety anxiety disorder. Uh, sometimes panic attacks, but that's a whole another whole another subject. Or at some point or another, when you know, if, if their parents got divorced, if they had to relocate away from friends, um, they wound up having an adjustment disorder where they needed to get seen by a provider, and quite appropriately, they needed to be treated. So, because suicide by aircraft or bad events by aircraft are not unknown, okay? Thank God they're not common but they do happen. I mean, we've seen everything from a student pilot trying to kill his instructor. Uh, that happened not that many years ago. To we've seen a pilot decides to shoot himself in the air uh, to make sure that the suicide was, well, effective. Hmm. And we've also seen a pilot who decided to uh, run his aircraft into his house in an attempt to kill his spouse. By the way, not a very effective way to do that. So we've seen all of these things. So it, it's not like it's common, but it does happen. So we have to run all these diagnoses to ground by taking a look at the information from the treating physician, possibly additional evaluations. In the youngsters, these same things can happen. And again, because these are things that we really, really need to know a lot about, uh, prior to certification, we have to run these to ground. And those are probably the big three that we see. Well, and that's it, that's interesting because it, it's sort of a two-pronged discussion, right? I mean, these things happen to people that have not yet become pilots, but it's also something that happens to people who are already pilots. And so you're talking about, well, the medical that will be and the medical that is and, you know, do you handle that similarly or is there a different path if you already have one versus you're trying to get one? The biggest, pro the biggest uh, challenge that we have in, in this is what's called diagnostic accuracy. Um, in fairness, and, I, and I'm board certified family practice, so I, I'm, you know, I'm preaching to our community here, but unfortunately, we are not fantastic at coming up with specific diagnoses, okay? We're just not that good at it. We don't have the time, you know, particularly nowadays, you know, patient counters are 15 minutes. You have 15 minutes to try to figure out the four problems that the patient has. So when the youngster comes in for his first medical and there's a history of mood disorder, there's a history of depression, anxiety, there's a, there's a history of 
uh, well, we don't generally get lucky enough to have it properly branded in uh, an adjustment disorder. We know we have some form of mood disorder that we have to find out about. And the first thing we have to find out is, is the diagnosis accurate? Did it actually happen hmm. or no? Now, most times, and again, back to what we're talking about with attention deficit disorder, and I'm trying to keep a, a smiling face on this because it is a positive the vast majority of these things, after we after we run it to ground, get the proper evaluations, the young person or adult in this case will wind up getting their medical. Now, they may need to be on a special issuance for a couple of years. Okay, we may need to watch them as they go on, make sure this doesn't come back. But then ultimately, they wind up getting a normal medical, and you wish them well and on their way, and you know, hope they enjoy hope they enjoy flying as much as we do. Mm-hmm. In some cases, however, when and, and actually we'll get more about into this in the mentor live as well, as far as the some cases where we can actually do the evaluations and we can issue instead of having to go through the air medical certification division to have it reviewed. Mm. Those are a little on the rare side. But in some cases, yeah, there is a problem and it is ongoing. And because we have this SSRI program that involves four SSRI medications and now Wellbutrin, we may be able to certify the airman on medication. Now, the evaluation process for that is it's extensive uh, as it needs to be. It needs to be extensive. And they're, they're watched every six months, but there are, there are some very nice processes in place, and we've been very successful uh, utilizing them where we are able to get people back into the air. But it, it's, it's a continuum of where we start and where we end, from evaluation and diagnostic accuracy all the way through to certification, and it does take a while. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, and it's interesting because you know, kind of going back to the idea that the the flight instructor is a line of defense. You know, we're we're spending a lot of time with these individuals. We're spending time with them. Um, you know, in potentially stressful situations because flight training can be stressful. Sometimes we generate the stress because we need to see how they react. Um, you know, when a AME comes back to an instructor and says, hey, you know, I, I'd like to have your sort of analysis per the the, the letter that we talked about, um, you know, how does the instructor then kind of determine, well, what is natural stress or, or nerves versus, you know, this person may have an issue, you know, handling these circumstances, maybe they've got some other things going on. Like, how do you how do you differentiate between what is quote unquote, normal and what might not be? It's hard. Uh, you know, I do not envy the CFI. I, honestly, I am in awe of CFIs. Um, I'm particularly in awe of my CFI. I managed to get through <laughs> in eight weeks with my, with, with my flight train. There are certain behaviors of, of, of nervousness that, yeah, everyone's, well, all right, let's just throw it out on the table there. Okay. So um, in, in, your, in your flight check uh, back in the very early 1980s, when, when you're doing your flight check and you do your under the hood unusual attitudes and the first time, the only time you've ever in your lifetime for whatever reason looked up. No idea why I did that. Hmm. Luckily, the guy was willing to give me a second chance. He, he said he liked my attitude. I, I, I was flying a lot. I was flying 
about five days a week. And I told him, I said, put, put the aircraft in any attitude you want. I said, you can invert it if you want. I will get this aircraft level. And he let me take another shot at it. And it went fine. We'll also talk about my turns about a point where <laughs> I think I did about 10 turns around the point before he finally asked me, are you going to roll out? Um, so that kind of thing's kind of normal nervousness. But and you know maybe even on a on a uh, on a missed on a missed approach or a, a touch and go, um, maybe reaching for uh, the flaps instead of the throttle or the throttle you know something along that that's normal nervousness. But and I'll, I'll give you an actual example that a CFI came to us with. So he's trying he's got an older pilot, and he's trying to say you know I'm trying to figure out what's real and what's not real here and. You know, okay, tell me what he did. And he said, well, you know, he, he was, he, you know, we, we were, we were basically, um, I, I gave him, a, you know, basically a rejected, uh, rejected landing. And he reached for the flaps, like I said, instead of, you know, instead of pushing up the throttle to go around. Oh, okay, all right. You know, that's just kind of, that's just kind of nerves. Uh, and, and, you know, for the CFIs there, tell me if I'm wrong on this. But what clued us in, we have a problem was when the CFI said, okay, well, then we had another incident. So we had a runway, single runway, taxiways only on both ends, mm. okay? So full stop landing, midfield, the CFI told him, taxi on in. The student pilot turned right off the runway in the middle of the runway and started going across the field to Ooh. get to the hangar. And I said, was it a, was it a plowed field? I mean, was it, you know, grass? I mean, it was something capable of taxiing across. And he goes, no, it wasn't. Uh, you know, we wound up having to pull the aircraft out uh, of it. So now we're starting to talk about stuff that goes, you know, hmm, okay. You know, th this, this may be something that a reasonable person would not do. Uh, even in nervousness. Now, I'm sure the CFIs out there have got 50 jillion and five stories on these types of things. But where I'm going with this is in, with our CFIs, and we have a lot of CFIs that we deal with, we always tell them if, you know, look, if you see something in a student, you're trying to tease out, is that normal behavior or was that just nervousness? Please feel free to give us a call. You know, um, we have uh, we have 11 doctors in our group. Most of us, all of us are pilots. Most of all of us have been flying for a very, very long time. Most of us are also military as well as civilian. So we've been, our, I think the last time I looked, we had a, roughly between the group, we had about 130 years or so of flight, uh, flight experience. Um, it's probably we're going to be able to guide you as far as telling you was that normal or was that not normal? Now, obviously, you're there, we're not. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, those are the kind of things that we look for. And, and one of the reasons we like to stay in touch with the CFIs, you know, to be, to be available for them as that resource. Yeah, Doc, and let's, I think this is a good time to, uh, to talk about, um, you, you say us, but let's talk about AirDocs a little bit. Um, you know, tell me about the organization. Tell me a little bit about what you guys do. Um, you know, and, and how you kind of facilitate that communication? Well, we started back roughly about 23 years ago. Um, 
with myself and Dr. Uh, Brown. Um, I'm trained both on the civilian side and also the military side uh, as a flight surgeon. And we, what we saw was we saw a lot of pilots who weren't flying, who probably could be flying, uh, but they were given bad information, sometimes by other pilots, sometimes, unfortunately, by the AMEs that they were seeing. And, you know, we basically grew the organization and grew and continued to grow till we're consulting on pilots basically all around the country and, you know, sometimes all around the world. But we have, um, we have a bunch of affiliate doctors now uh, who are with us. And uh, some of the other services lines that we branched into is we do in-flight support for Part 91 and Part 135. We have a fleet of aircraft uh, across multiple, multiple operators that we provide the in-flight for. Uh, also have our own line of medical kits. And, you know, your alumni at Western, uh, we, you, know, we, you know, we have the high altitude lab there, which we operate, which we own and operate for Western Michigan University, where we teach the students, uh, you know, how to recognize their hypoxic signs. And actually, we've got about 80 some odd students we're trying to get through before Christmas on that. So mm. those are the various different. Basically, we're all avia all aviation. Um, it's, it's still aviation is still my number one passion. Aviation uh, medicine is still my number two passion. Uh, and I get I, luckily I get to make a living out of both. Yeah, I was going to say, not often do you get to t pick your two favorite things and and make it work as a career. So that's that's kind of cool. So I consider myself very I consider myself very lucky from that regard. So if somebody does end up with, uh, you know, medically themed questions or issues on their their medical certification, Airdox is a, a good place or a good resource to go to for for some help and insight on that. We can we can come in on consult with it and we do literally every day, of the, every day of the week. Excellent. Well, I want to put a uh, kind of a, a a bow on all of this, and and one of the things that we haven't talked about coming back to the idea that um, you know pilots should be kind of talking about a medical or, or getting the medical from the very beginning, at least with their instructor, is you know there's there's a lot of things that you know could potentially be issues that you know to to state your point that you would never know by looking at the person. Right. Um, right. And, and I'd like to kind of bring in myself in here. Cause you know, I have a special issuance um, you've been working with me for years. And, and, you know, one day I was actually taking a check ride. I've been on a normal medical for, I don't know, gosh, a decade. And um, I was asking, or I was answering a question from an examiner on, on a type ride of all things. And the examiner said something probably profound. And I went and hung my head in my hands like this. And next thing I know, and this is like the third question of the check ride. So of course that's ideal. And I'm going, what's this bump thing? Huh? That's weird. And of course, so for the next two hours while I'm trying to pass a check ride, all I'm thinking about is, Oh my God, I have cancer. I've got this, I've got that. Um, and, uh, you know, thankfully it wasn't any of those particular things. Um, but it doesn't affect me physically. It doesn't affect me mentally. It doesn't bother my flying skills, but unfortunately it has turned out to be one of those things that the FAA has said, Hey, we, we need to pay attention to this. We need to watch what this is. Um, and I was a little bit taken aback when I first started talking with you about it because you said, well, you know, we need to go down this path of, okay, we need to get a special issuance and we need a letter and all these additional medical documents. And I remember I asked you, I went, 
I don't understand. <laughs> why why do we have to do this? It doesn't it doesn't change anything. And and you know, as pilots, I think we're always uh a little bit on the defense when these things come up. But at the same time, if I had been a private student, there's zero chance that I would have been necessarily forthcoming with that information to my CFI, not because I was trying to hide it, but because I probably would have went, this is no big deal. Um, and, you know, so there's a lot of that that comes into things, you know, there, there may be just things that have happened to people physically over the years, whether it be, you know, illnesses or something along the lines that they figure that they've gotten over, but it's still worthwhile talking about, right? Absolutely. You know, the, the FAA is a, a relatively risk intolerant, uh, organization, uh, or agency, you know, honestly, the only way we'll ever make the uh, the national airspace system completely 100% safe is if we don't fly. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the only way we're going to get to 100% safety. So obviously, that's not practical. So what we do is we try to mitigate that risk. And, you know, unfortunately, most of aviation medicine is written in blood. Mm-hmm. In other words... A lot of these conditions that we follow for special issuance, unfortunately, we've had a, an accident in our fatality that's been secondary to that. Um, and I can name you a bunch of those. Uh, but yeah, but the, the really, really, as you said, to put a bow on it, the thing to know for the flight instructors is this. These are the footstumps. We know the flight training is very, very expensive. We want to do it as efficiently as possible to maximize the time and maximize the training. What's always a good strategy for the flight instructor is to find out from the student, do you have any medical conditions that we may need to know more about? Now, that's an important way to couch it. You know, you don't have to say, do you know of any medical conditions which may disqualify you? Mm -hmm. Because... Honestly, the final the final denial rate for FAN medicals is extremely low. It's one tenth. It's roughly one tenth of one percent. The amount of people that ultimately are not allowed to fly is very very low. So the chances are really really good that we're going to be able to let this person uh, fly. And it's better to find that out earlier in the process so we can get through this regulatory aspect of it, you know, so their flight training can, can proceed properly. The other part of that is we get that, you know, we get that the CFIs or just anyone on the street for that matter is not gonna necessarily know what is aeromedically significant. And you may ask yourself, you know, why is this condition aeromedically significant? Why do, why do we need to be on a special issue for this condition? And it's usually because the folks who study this stuff say that your risk of that is high enough that, yeah, you need to follow that. So coming back to the very beginning, like, for example, in your case, John, what may have seemed to be innocuous problem for you, yeah, was something that we needed to follow and put mm-hmm. on special issues. Now, let's go to the converse of that. If there isn't a day that we get somebody who, who emails us or, or, or makes a phone call saying, oh, my God, I, 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 I've got this problem. Um, uh, can I fly? 
oh my God, is my flying career over? Is it, is it over before I started? The answer is no, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's not, and it's not even a special issuance. When, particularly when we, when I started out earlier, it was hilarious to have someone come in with a, a simple diagnosis, say hypertension or high blood pressure. And, you know, they, they've got some documentation, you know, we go look through the documentation and, you know, and we get the blood pressure and the like, and they're going, God, when am I going to get, how long is it going to take me for to get my medical? Well, as long as it takes me to type it out on the typewriter, uh, <laughs> it's going to take a couple minutes, but we'll have it done pretty soon. Now, obviously, we don't type out certificates anymore. But it's a matter of just a cooperative nature between the CFIs and the aeromedical community and getting us into the loop early in case there are any questions. You don't want to have to wait, and this has happened, you don't want to have, have to wait until Johnny's in his lesson and as he gets out of the airplane, the bottle of Ritalin falls out of his pocket. Mm -hmm. That actually happened. Mm. Okay. Bring us in early, recognize that you can be encouraging with them, recognize it is likely, very likely going to have a good outcome. Uh, and, uh, you know, we can all go forward and, you know, help try to keep the national airspace system safe. I, I think that's great advice. And, you know, I, I think that uh, it, it all comes back to, you know, have an open dialogue with your students, you know, make sure right. that you understand who they are. And, and I think, the, the benefit to that isn't just the medical certification and, and, you know, training and stuff like that, but understanding your student has benefits well beyond that. It, it helps you learn how to properly teach them. It's, you know, a communication and, and uh, understanding um, network for them. I mean, it, it just, it, it opens up all of these other positive things that, that you just, the more you know about your student, the better off that relationship is going to be. So I think that that's Absolutely. important. Um, Dr. Pinnell, I, as we kind of close this down, I, I appreciate you taking the time. I've always appreciated your, uh, your guidance as my own AME um, and for all the things that you've done for me personally. Um, but you've been very active in, in, uh, you know, aviation and, and keeping pilots safe. And, and I think that that's, that's truly important and, and needs to be appreciated by the rest of us. So thank you for all that you do. Um, and for those of you out there, special issuance isn't the end of the world. It wasn't for me. And, uh, um, you just got to get your ducks in a row and, and keep trudging forward. So thank you, doc. Any final thoughts? Nope. Just remember. We all have a responsibility, all of us who are in this business, to basically protect the national airspace system, but also at the same time protect the pilot, protect this person who is in our charge. So, you know, it's a, it, it's an awesome responsibility. You know, we take it seriously. I'm sure the CFIs take it very seriously. And if we work together, we have a better outcome and we put more pilots in the seat. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you, doctor. Take care now. Have a good one.